Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick off, a big thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world. Using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication, Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equity, and health across the world. Quilt AI believe that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. It has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So big thanks to our sponsors. Today, it really is an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the Do One Better podcast, Dr. Charlie Teo. He is a globally renowned neurosurgeon. He's joining us from Australia today. He is the founder of the Charlie Teo Foundation, focusing on brain cancer, brain cancer research, low-cost models for brain cancer surgery. And uh, very interesting here is how Charlie combines his, his um, expertise in neurosurgery with a philanthropic um, lifestyle, we could even say. In other words, he spends about three or four months out of every year in the Global South, helping out where he is needed. A lot of this work is in Southeast Asia, but also throughout the globe. So, um, Charlie, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Oh, it's a great privilege and a pleasure to be here, Alberto. Thank you. Yeah, great. Why don't we um, Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Charlie Teo Foundation? Why did you start it? What does it do? Well, it started, I guess, uh, serendipitously. I returned from America, oh, 20 years ago, where there's a lot of philanthropy and uh, uh, a lot of generous. Uh, donors to non-government organizations. And uh, I didn't find the same thing when I came back to Australia. So I set up a foundation called the Cure for Life Foundation, which was going to concentrate on brain cancer research. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was very successful. Within two or three years, we became the largest funder of brain cancer research in Australia. That morphed into the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation. We felt that we grew enough to own that space where we could call ourselves the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation. And again, over a 10-year period, we raised millions of dollars and uh, I guess in total up to $20 million over that period of time. But then I was giving a talk one day, Alberto, and I came off the stage where I'd said that, uh, you know, why you should fund us because we're low-cost uh, a charity and we run lean. And one of the uh, COOs of the foundation said, Charlie, you can't say that anymore. We're running at about 58 to 68% uh, overheads. Mm -hmm. And uh, it upset me and shocked me. And I said to the uh, board, you know, you've got to change that. That's ridiculous. I I like running, you know, really lean and efficiently, and that's too high uh, administration costs. And a few weeks later, climbed to 73% and I said well you know this uh I think we should fire everyone and you were very popular yeah not very popular so they said well listen if you don't like the way we run you know you should leave and I go well it's my foundation I set it up how how can I do that and anyway it was a not an acrimonious separation but it certainly wasn't pleasant and uh 
And so I thought, listen, if I'm going to continue raising money for brain cancer research, I want to make sure that I fulfill a few criteria. And mm-hmm. the most obvious criteria was to be uh, efficient and uh, try and keep the administration costs below a certain percentage. I initially said 10%. Everyone said that's impossible. So we're, we're now running almost around 10 15% overheads, which is, uh, uh, you know, a world first, essentially. So in terms of the foundation and your work uh, driving forward excellence in, in, in brain cancer research and, and neurosurgery, tell me a little bit about um, where the need is more pronounced in Australia and then also in the, um, in the other countries where you operate. How is it that you're uh, making a difference? Look, Alberto, it's pretty simple. Uh, it goes like this. Brain cancer is devastating. No one will ever deny that. It's uh, ranked as the worst cancer known to mankind. No one survives it, 100% mortality. Most people are dead within a year of diagnosis. Kills more children than any other cancer in the in developing countries, sorry, in developed countries, and kills more children than any other disease in the UK, US, Australia. So it is a terrible, terrible cancer that's killing our children. Hmm. And with facts like that, you would think that governments in all those continents would fund it higher than other cancers, but in fact, it's the lowest and the least funded of all the cancers. Uh, so that terrible disparity between impact on society, killing our youth, and getting funding is something that I felt I needed to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we are. The brain cancer research community is very, very dependent on non-government organizations raising money at the coalface uh, for research because government tend not to fund it. And you're probably sitting back there thinking, well, hang on, that's that can't be right. If it's killing more children than any other disease, yeah. surely it gets the most funding. But no, Alberto, it's in all in all the developed uh, first world countries. Uh, it is the least funded of all the cancers. It's it's probably multifactorial as to why that happens. But okay. one of the major things, of course, is that it's not the, one of the more common cancers. So you know, governments have to stay in power stay in power by being popular how do they be popular they fund cancers that are i guess in inverted commas popular cancers so breast cancer prostate cancer they all get extraordinary amounts of funding disparate to uh, their impact on society and cancers like brain cancer which is very unattractive everyone dies people are very nihilistic about it uh, and uh, it's not a common cancer uh, gets very, very little funding because really it doesn't get the same uh, votes if you fund brain cancer research. So it was uh, it was a no-brainer to set up an organisation to raise money for it when it was so poorly funded by our government. Hmm. And when we're talking about brain cancer, we're we talking about uh, a malignant tumour, for instance, or various varieties? So what, what are we, when you're addressing brain cancer, what, what is that? Yes. No, there are many different varieties. Uh, but there's one that stands out as the most common of all the primary brain tumours, and it's called uh, a malign- malignant glioma. It has lots of synonyms, uh, GBM, which stands for glioblastoma multiforme. Uh, another synonym is uh, stage 4 uh, glioma or stage 4 astrocytoma. Uh, but they're all the same thing. It's all brain cancer. Now, there are rarer types, and some of those rarer types actually have a higher success rate of treatment, and and some of them can actually be cured, such as a tumor called a medulloblastoma. Mm-hmm. But GBM uh, is incurable. 
and there's a high mortality rate. And like I say, unfortunately, it's also the most common. Mm. So that's the one that we uh, are targeting when we try and raise money for brain cancer research. It's the GBM that we're trying to target. Got it. Got it. And how far away are we from looking at, uh, for being in a state of uh, affairs where uh, there are some treatments that are going to be successful? I know a lot of cancers uh, are these days, you know, you get it, but you're expected to, to recover fairly well. Um, but there are a few that, that persist. How far away are we from having um, the ability to, to tackle this in a, in a more successful manner? Well, at the current rate, Alberto, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good because uh, many of the other cancers have improved their survival rates dramatically in the last two or three decades. Uh, leukemia is one of them. Mm -hmm. When I was a medical student 30, 40 years ago, we were taught that uh, there was a, almost a 90% mortality rate from leukemia. And with billions of dollars of research and time and effort, we have now basically flipped those figures so that the Mortality rates are about 10%, 5-10%, and the success rates are about 90%. Uh, other cancers, for example, breast cancer, the success rates are much higher now, bowel cancer, melanoma. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, historically, brain cancer survival rates and mortality rates haven't changed in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so if we continue on that sort of uh, uh, gradient, then of course we're not going to find a cure for ages. I'm hoping that things are going to uh, be ramped up now. And why do I say that? It's because that we've now mapped the human genome. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we know what normal is, so hopefully we can tell what abnormal is. Uh, we have now realized and discovered scientifically that the immune system has a, a major role to play with brain cancer, and before it was felt that the immune system had no role to play. Uh, so with those major changes in our uh, understanding of brain cancer, I'm hoping that things will accelerate now. But look, it has been pretty dismal. It has been very pessimistic. Uh, but I have a newfound optimism that uh, in the next decade, we'll be finding some pretty effective treatments for brain cancer and possibly even a cure. Mm. And from your side, then, when you're, when you're addressing this issue and you're really trying to mobilize um philanthropic engagement and and just the population in general to to try to address this problem is it more than anything um a policy issue of uh, asking policymakers and those who control the purse strings to to fund this in a more robust manner or is there something else that needs to be done look my last foundation we had four government lobbyists employed under our uh, uh, banner. Mm -hmm. And even with that, we made very little headway with governments. Uh, I'm sorry, Alberto. I know I sound a little bit cynical, but I'm very cynical about governments. You know, it, it is about staying in power. It is staying. It is, it is all about staying popular, and it's not so much about the, the root cause uh, or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the efforts that are going to find uh, answers. It's more about staying in power with government. So no, I, I, I'm I'm personally not dependent on governments. I don't lobby them at all. I'm pretty uh, uh, pretty pessimistic about the way they approach uh, funding for cancers, and I think it's up to me to actually do it on my own. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I'm good at raising money. I've operated on enough people in Australia where there's almost a single degree of separation between me and someone on whom I've operated. So I, I do have a lot of contacts and, and with that, I've, I've been very, very lucky in that high net worth individuals and corporations have come on board and are helping me try and realise my vision of finding a cure for brain cancer. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's not government lobbying. I think it's coalface lobbying and uh, and support from the public. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me from your side then, and from the foundation's perspective, uh, you're able to do very well with with certain philanthropists and, and corporate partners, as you mentioned. What do you then do? Are, are you mainly driving forward the research? Are you performing operations? Are you? What are the key activity areas that you're you're focusing on? Yeah, I've always thought of doing surgeries better as like having the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, you know, uh-huh. as opposed to the fence at the top of the cliff. And I've always tried to take the approach of building the fence at the top of the cliff, stopping people from getting brain cancer or treating it, you know, yeah. as, as, as you first diagnosed it, is better than having better surgical techniques. Not that surgery, of course, is not without its role. As a surgeon, of course, I, I it's very important. But I'd much rather devote the money and the time and expertise to trying to find, you know, reasons as to why we've got cancer and and targeted treatments. So uh, the Charlie T.O. Foundation is unique for several reasons. One, because it runs so lean and we keep our administration costs down. Two, because we're incredibly transparent about that. And again, I know I sound a little bit cynical, but it turns out that major charity corporations often spin their figures to make them look good. And, uh, you know, talk about administration costs being 10% because they don't include salaries. They include salaries under raising awareness. And that's, a, you know, a bit of a, uh, I think it's conning the public myself. Uh, so the Charlie Tier Foundation, firstly, runs lean. We believe in volunteerism and we have, you know, people paying for our office, our electricity, our stationery, and we have... Uh, corporations doing our marketing and sales, uh, all pro bono. Uh, We only have three full-time employees, and yet we raise uh, millions every year. Secondly, the transparency. And thirdly, uh, I don't know, I just was a little bit self-critical about how much money I raised with my previous foundations, but how little impact I had made. And I thought I was doing something wrong. I mean, I'll tell you a little story, which is really interesting. And I was on a selection committee to pick the head of the brain cancer part of the uh, cancer centre at my university. Mm -hmm. And there was about four of us in the room and the candidates came in and made their presentations. And this one guy came in, he was wearing a beanie. He looked a little bit unkempt. Uh, He was was a bit manic. uh, But clearly the guy was a genius. Mm-hmm. And he told us why we should employ him and his theories about brain cancer. And he walked out of the room. We all felt, we all looked at each other and thought, oh my God, that's the guy who's going to find the cure for brain cancer. Hmm. But believe it or not, Alberto, we didn't pick him. Hmm. And we didn't pick him because he just didn't fit the mold. He didn't have any publications to his name. He uh, wasn't sort of person, he wasn't the sort of person who could manage a group of scientists. He uh, certainly wasn't the sort of person you'd put in front of an audience to mm-hmm. uh, to get funding, uh, but he was clearly a genius. And it, it occurred to me that I was funding uh, all this science research at major universities because, you know, 
the people we were funding had track records, they had NIH funding, they uh, were good speakers, they presented well, they were good people managers. But the real geniuses were out there somewhere uh, who we weren't funding. Well, if you look at if you look if you do your research, you find that many of the major breakthroughs we've made in medical science have been by those left field thinkers, the people who think outside the box, the people who are a little bit disruptive in their approach, uh, and they're often not funded by the major universities. In fact, some of them have to experiment on themselves. I'm sure you know the Nobel laureate uh, Barry Marshall, who discovered mm. that uh, cancers were due to a, a bug called Helicobacter. Well, it turns out that Barry Marshall was ostracized by his colleagues. He was, everyone thought he was a bit of a, an oddball. He wasn't funded, and he, he had so little funding that he actually had to use himself as a guinea pig and give himself the bug to cause a, an ulcer. <laughs> uh, so my charter and uh, my aim is to find the Barry Marshalls of brain cancer research uh, to search the world for these people who are – who may not have the big names, they may not be funded by universities, and they may not have these big grants, but they're geniuses who uh, think outside the box. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's part of our uh, that's part of our agenda at the Charlie Teo Foundation to find those people. And I must say that uh, uh, we've identified a few people already who are just whose theories are just way out there, Alberto. But they do have science behind them, and you know if they. Uh, if they come to fruition, they could be the, uh, you know, the magic bullet. Uh, things like, uh, believe it or not, cancer cells don't grow well uh, in anti-gravity environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really weird. I have to admit, I, I was not aware of that. Yeah, no, well, nor was I until, I, of course, I met this scientist. And so this scientist has actually come up with a device that creates an anti-gravity environment to imp- imp- impede the, fl- uh, the growth of cancer cells. And our first experiment, of course, is he's taking our cancer cells up into space hmm. uh, and watching what, what mechanisms are at, at play that uh, reduce the uh, proliferation rate of cancer cells in uh, an anti-gravity environment. Incredible. So, isn't that incredible? It I is. mean, you know, it that's is, it really is. left field. Yeah, it's really left field, but uh, who knows? It could actually be the answer. A bit of an expensive experiment, right? You have to fly or fly fly cargo up there or something. <laughs> yeah, well, he's getting it free. He's actually getting to uh, send the specimens up there uh, uh, under someone else's cost. So that's great. Good. Great. It must be must be quite challenging though finding that talent pipeline, as it were, to back uh, because by by definition, if they're not the ones who are publishing extensively, if they're not the ones in the big in, in the big organizations then it's a little bit of detective work for you to go out and find talented individuals who are slightly off the um, outside the mold. Of course, of course, because, uh, again, not a politically correct statement, Mm. but, uh, you know, everyone thinks, well, I used to think that scientists were all uh, very altruistic, They were sitting in their little lab without any sort of recognition. They were in it for humanity and the betterment of mankind. And But, you know, that's a very naive uh, opinion of scientists. Scientists are like any other humans. They have egos. Uh, you know, everyone wants to find be the one who finds a cure for cancer. They have uh, uh, There's politics involved. There's personalities involved. And, and it wasn't until I set up my foundation and I build up a medical advisory board that I realize that, you know, uh, there's politics and everything. And 
I can remember re- uh, an application that came in, and, we, and I thought, gee, that'd be a great project. We should fund that. Mm. And one of our medical advisory boards said, oh, no, that guy's a, you know, a pretty nasty person. And so we didn't fund it because he had a personality conflict with him. And, and then, it, you know, it struck me, and I don't know why I never thought this, but it struck me that, uh, you know, what we've got to do is try and rise above the politics rise above the power struggles and the the uh, the old school thinking and mm-hmm. the and the uh, established thinkers and we've got to try and find those uh, those people who who probably do have the answer alberto and and they're just not recognized mm. easier said than done but the effort would probably pay off well i think so and i hope so and you know I, uh, part of it has been the fact that i have this sense of urgency that uh, you know every day kids and people are dying of brain cancer and you know they say it's 50 billion dollars in 50 years to find a cure for cancer but I, I i would like to think that i don't have that as 50 years and i'd like to find it in a much shorter period of time with much less money so mm. uh, that's that's why we've taken that sort of tack to try and yeah. find those people what what uh, what drove you into this specialism was it uh, simply the curiosity and the love for the field or did you have a personal experience with, with um, no, how, did, how did you end up where you are today it was serendipity. I I hated neurosurgery as a medical student. Uh-huh. I thought it was too uh, uncompromising. I thought it was too uh, high risk. Uh, oh, I just didn't like it. You know, in my day, when I first started neurosurgery, we used to call the neurosurgical ward the veggie patch uh, because people did so poorly and surgery was very invasive. Oh, they often did poorly after surgery. They looked terrible. They had their hair shaved. Oh, it was just terrible. And so I started doing pediatric surgery and uh, the neurosurgical registrar fell ill, I think, with hepatitis. And they said, listen, would you mind covering his call for neurosurgery? So even though I hated neurosurgery, I was thrust into it against my will. Uh-huh. And uh, when I started uh, learning about it, I, the fear left me and I realized that it was a specialty that uh, was examining an organ that was a great unknown that you could still be a pioneer in this specialty because it was such a young specialty. It had only been around since 1910. Uh, and uh, all those things appealed to me, you know, the degree of difficulty, the high-risk nature, the uh, uh, ability to still discover uh, new horizons. Uh, hmm. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I was thrust into it, but then I fell in love with it. That's great. And the degree of invasiveness, mm. you, you touched on that briefly. So how how non-invasive are things today compared to what they were when you started off on things? Yeah, well, oh, significantly differently, uh, different now. When I started, there was no such thing as computers, of course. Uh, we had to find a lesion deep within the brain by poking around, and I mean literally poking around. We'd get a needle, a thick needle, put it through the brain, try and find the tumour, suck out a little bit, look at it under a naked eye to see if it looked any different to normal brain, and then follow that track down once we found it. Oftentimes, you'd be poking this needle around four, five, six, ten times to find the tumour. Every time you pass the needle into the brain, it ran the uh, risk of damage, and that was the way we found deep-seated tumours. And then, thankfully, with technology, we now have a GPS system for the brain called Frameless Stereotactic Guidance. Uh, we now do a preoperative image, which we then feed those images into a computer. The computer then uh, figures out uh, uh, 
the coordinates to find the, the deep seated tumor to sub millimeter accuracy, where we just use a computer, uh, a fiducial reference frame, and a special pointer that's uh, uh, that uh, is connected to the computer. And yeah, we that takes all the guesswork out of neurosurgery, and that's something that's only come in the last 10, 15 years. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's changing rapidly. Uh, my Main claim to fame, of course, now is keyhole minimally invasive neurosurgery where we develop techniques where small incisions, less invasive, don't have to shave the hair. Often we do them through the nose to get to the skull base, so there's no scar. Uh, we do it through the nose because we've got nice single-shafted micro-instruments and good visualisation with endoscopes. Uh, a lot of my surgeries I do through the eyebrow. Uh, and so different world. Oh my God. The, the change in the last 30 years. Yeah, absolutely different. Different yeah. world. And now you're, you're spending about, you said about three months, four months out of the year outside of Australia. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, I guess it is part of my upbringing. I went to a Christian school. My best friends, are Muslim, my best friend in Australia is Jewish. I was raised a Buddhist. And the one common thread with all those religions is that, you know, it's better to give than to receive. Mm -hmm. And so that philosophy was always drummed into me by my mum. And, uh, you know, neurosurgery gives you a lot. It gives you status in the community. It gives you a good salary. It gives you uh, the great feeling of helping other people. And so I've always felt that, you know, it's, you can't just keep taking and taking and taking and you have to give back a little bit. So, you know, I guess about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I decided to spend a few months every year uh, helping uh, teach neurosurgeons in developing countries and operating on uh, poor people in developing countries. So I've been doing that for 30 years. Initially, I did it in South America because I was stationed in America mm -hmm. and now I do it mostly in Southeast Asia. Um, I have a hospital in India, which is a pro bono hospital uh, okay. servicing a, a small uh, city called Jabalpur in uh, Madhya Pradesh. Mm -hmm. uh, and I set that up with my own funds. But now it runs so well that uh, private patients go there as well and the private patients support the public patients. And, uh, yeah, it's self-running it's self now. So it's a great lesson that, you know, all it takes is a vision a little bit of generosity and charity to start off with, but then if you uh, if it's a good model and is uh, you have good people working there, then it can run itself and actually even possibly turn a profit. Mm. Must be incredibly rewarding to, uh, to to have done that. Oh, it's great because it all started because my I have a fellowship program that trains neurosurgeons from around the world, and one of the trainees was from India. I met him a few years after he finished my, finish, finished my fellowship and said, uh, Ashish, you know, how's it going? And he goes, look, unfortunately, I haven't been able to use your techniques because we don't have a microscope. And uh, that's when I said, oh, well, I'll pay for a microscope. I'll buy you one. And with the money I gave him, the cost of living is so low in India that instead of buying a microscope, he could actually buy this hospital. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's how it started. Uh, and I go back there you know, two weeks in every year, three weeks in every year to uh, teach and run a course. And the guy's amazing. He's built up this fantastic surgical specialty hospital with uh, not only neurosurgery but orthopedics. 
Uh, he's got a board of really lovely charitable sort of people that basically make sure that it's uh, fiscally uh, uh, efficient and uh, oh no, the whole thing has worked out very, very well. Hmm. Now this is maybe a little bit of an unfair question, but what's the bigger challenge? Is it about the equipment or is it about the, let's say the, the human capital, the, the, the individuals on the ground who would be able to, to know what they're doing in neurosurgery? Uh, it's probably the latter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, if a tool is only as good as the person who's using it, so the people definitely have to be trained well. And then if you give them the equipment, they can be more efficient and better surgeons, but no, the basic substrate that you require is good teaching, good hearted people, uh, people who care, doctors who care, and her doctors who are willing to sort of upskill and keep up with the latest uh, trends and educate themselves and, mm -hmm. and offer the patients the best, uh, the best treatments. And then, of course, if you can give them technology as well, it makes them even better still. But no, I think more important than technology is the human factor. Yeah. And in terms of the technology, uh, you mentioned you know, how it's enabled you to go from highly invasive procedures to to procedures that you, you wouldn't even be able to visually see that have taken place. What about using technology to um, enable uh, individuals like you who might be in Australia or the UK to remotely deliver their expertise to a field hospital someplace else or to, to train um, individuals who might be located in very remote regions? Is there much of that? Look, you're talking about the da Vinci sort of model and so with general surgery and, and acute trauma surgery, they are using the remote surgeons who work a machine uh, that can then uh, uh, remotely work a machine at the site. Uh, 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 but unfortunately, uh, neurosurgery is so, so technically challenging and uh, haptic feedback is incredibly important in terms of the way the brain is manipulated. And, you know, the brain is such a soft organ, it's easy to destroy and damage just with mm -hmm. too much retraction or, you know, poor technique. Uh, now, I'm not saying that, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons and general surgeons have poor technique, but it's just a little bit less uh, forgiving. Well, it's a lot less forgiving, the brain. And so those uh, virtual reality uh, or off-site surgical processes haven't quite uh, reached neurosurgery, mm. neurosurgery yet. So the remoteness all comes in about, uh, you know, speaking to patients, teaching neurosurgeons via Zoom and uh, via the internet uh, if you can't get there. But actually remote surgery, no, we're not, we're not mm. at that stage. Mm. Yeah. If you if you and I are having a, a coffee or a podcast in 2030, 10 years from now, what what would success look like to you? What what is it that you'd love to um, have achieved by then? Well, ideally, I'd like to be out of a job, mm. Alberto. Because you know, uh, look, and that is not so far from reality. Uh, and what I mean by that is that already we have. Uh, focused radiation machines that can deliver focused radiation to tumors and, and zap them without putting a knife to a patient. So that it doesn't get much more minimally invasive than that. Uh, we also have some forms of laser, it's called LIT, uh, that can place a probe in someone's brain, 
uh, and pass an energy source or a heat source into the tumour and kill the tumour without actually having to visualise it or open it. They're all guided by computers and uh, and uh, MRI images. So, yeah, in 10 years' time, in the ideal world, I'd like to be able to say, you know, isn't it, fan- isn't it, isn't it terrible that, you know, 10 years ago we were cutting people open to take out tumours. Now all we have to do is put them under a... Uh, uh, a special machine or, or give them a special tablet. Mm. Uh, so that's in the ideal world and that's sort of really looking to the future. But I guess uh, some halfway mark would be, you know, where all neurosurgery is minimally invasive because technology has advanced so much that we don't have to destroy any or we can reduce collateral damage uh, and that we hopefully have treatments for brain cancer. Yeah. Uh, you see, the worst thing about patient who's, diagnosed with brain cancer is that when they see their oncologist, the oncologist goes, oh, we've got one drug called temozolomide. And then, okay, doctor, what if, what if that doesn't work? What have we got? Nothing. So there is there's nothing else. We have one chemotherapeutic agent, we have radiotherapy and surgery, and that's it. And if they fail, yeah, we've got second-line chemotherapy and experimental therapy, but they're very, very ineffective. And as opposed to other cancers where you see a breast cancer specialist and he goes, We've got first line, second line, third line, fourth line, up to 10th line treatments if the first one fails. Uh, and I want to be able to offer brain cancer patients that, you know, that we do have alternatives if the first one doesn't work. Yeah. We can't do that at the moment. Yeah. Well, here's to you being unemployed in 10 years' time. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> um, a key takeaway for our listeners before we wrap things up, what's the what's the one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, this is a little bit philosophical, but during these COVID times mm-hmm. uh, where we're all a bit challenged and we're all suffering a little bit, I guess the word I'd like to get out is that, you know, there's always someone worse off than you. <laughs> mm, mm. And I know that sounds a bit cliche-ish, but, you know, we're all so concerned about getting this virus or losing our income. And, you know, at least we don't have brain cancer, Alberto. When you're labelled with brain cancer, those poor patients are basically given a use-by date on them. And, and you know, I think we should all step back and be less concerned about ourselves and more concerned about others who are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. If it's not brain cancer, then someone in a in a, com- a war zone or someone who's suffering from hunger and uh, and impoverishedness. And uh, look, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess the lesson I'd like people to realise is that brain cancer is so terrible. Please don't ever be worried about your own plight uh, when there are other people out there with a death sentence and no no potential treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we want to change. We really want to change it. So the poor old brain cancer patient, then I can say to the brain cancer patient, well, what are you worried about? You've only got brain cancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. Before we wrap up, what's your website address? What's the best way if somebody's listening to this and they think, well, I'd like to find out more? Um, oh, that's lovely. It's the charlietofoundation.org.au. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are desperate for, uh, for donations. Uh, we are in desperate need and patients, uh, patients really need your help. So yeah, if I can give a plug for that, it's an unabashed plug for brain cancer research and the Charlie T.O. Foundation and why the Charlie T.O. Foundation, because I can promise you 
that we make sure that uh, we run so lean that most of the money that's raised goes to brain cancer research and not to the running of the foundation itself. Mm. Charlie, it, ha- it has been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks ever so much for, for your time and for the insight and for the passion that you're clearly bringing into this whole field. So it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Alberto, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm-hmm.